Welcome to episode 176, Remnants of Combat, Assisting Veterans with PTSD and TBI, featuring Dr. Lauren Lindner, licensed psychologist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth E. Riez, and today I am honored and looking forward to spending time with Dr. Lauren Lindner. She specializes in working with veterans, and goodness knows that this is an underserved population, and that this particular group of people has been through so much throughout United States history, um, throughout all history, really. Anybody who's in the armed services, um, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Lindner. We're very happy to have you. And I'm happy to be here. So before we dive into what is a very rich topic, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and how you came to work with this particular population? Well, my story really begins walking home from work one day from my office, my private practice in Westwood, California, and um, seeing a veteran standing in the doorway of a closed up shop and I thought he wanted some spare change, but he really wanted me to hear his story. And uh, it was the first time that homelessness in the veteran population was brought to my attention, and it was shocking to me. And I went home and was forever changed. Wrote to every one of my legislators and media outlets, what are we doing about veterans who have no permanent housing? And... uh, that started it all. So you started with a, sounds like a personal experience. How does one begin to develop more competence working with this population? If you're not coming at it from either your own experience, having worked in the armed forces or family experience, what does that look like to become specialized in the treatment of veterans? Well, fortunately, there are loads of opportunities. I think anyone listening to this podcast is is either starting or continuing their growth in this area. And there there are many um, trainings actually offered by the Veterans Administration, the VA. And there are just basic trainings in cognitive behavioral therapy that is focused on um, the the, um, trauma that comes from military service, uh, the PTSD and traumatic brain injury. So um, the VA will actually offer services to clinicians who are seeing veterans um, suffering from PTSD. And by that, I mean post-traumatic stress disorder. There was certainly a time um, not too long ago, and some would say a time that still exists, where talking about the word veteran and the term post-traumatic stress disorder in the same sense uh, was not openly permitted. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of the shift to more inclusion with this community relating to the importance of mental health? Post-traumatic stress disorder used to be called shell shock, battle fatigue, and each time those um, terms were discouraged to be used by veterans from the, um, the Veteran Administration and the Department of Defense. In the last 30 years, 30 plus years, the VA has tried to make a shift away from 
making it a no-no to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder in in veterans, um, just as they have now recognized um, illnesses related to Desert Storm and Desert Shield, which for a long time veterans fought to have recognized, and just as they are now recognizing um, the use of Agent Orange in the Vietnam War that caused a lot of um, physical health problems, including diabetes and so forth, in veterans. So. The VA um, is slow to come along, but now I've never seen the, the, the Veterans Administration be so proactive in um, addressing issues that are resulting from um, multiple tours that we hadn't seen before um, with other conflicts. And that, that is with um, Operation Enduring Freedom, OEF, and Operation Iraqi Freedom, OIF. Those... Uh, service members and from, from those conflicts um, came back with uh, a, a, a disproportionate amount of depression um, and also traumatic brain injuries. One of the reasons for that is because there were, there were many, many re-enlistments. There, there were upwards of five tours that, um, that service members were engaging in and each time there is an increased risk for either compounding or um, experiencing for the first time um, traumatic stressors, including traumatic brain injuries from things like intermittent explosive devices, IEDs, um, and of course, um, much much closer contact than, than in, in other wars. Um, like the Vietnam War. So you're seeing higher rates of depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and traumatic brain injuries in these in this population. So in that way, is it cumulative that basically the more time, the more tours, the more likelihood that you're going to come home and have one or more diagnosable mental health conditions, at least by the DSM? That's absolutely correct. Um, and in, 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 in suffering from these conditions, you're also risking um, experiencing a higher risk, that is, of um, suicidal ideation, you know, drug and alcohol use, failed relationships. And the awful statistic that's thrown around is actually came from um, the VA is that um, after these service members returned from these conflicts, 22 of them were committing suicide every day. And um, this is largely from untreated post-traumatic stress disorder and other traumatic injuries. So um, this, this, this is, like you said earlier, an underserved population and not necessarily that easy to reach. I mean, there's an estimated 16.5 million veterans in the United States, and another one and a quarter uh, active duty service members. So you're looking at 7% of the U.S. population. Here in California, we have the third largest veteran population and also the largest number of veterans without permanent housing. And, and these are directly connected to diagnostic issues, um, which, which uh, I'll be happy to address. Along those lines, please do. 
Um, so if you can share why it is that with a population of veterans and active service members, it's so high, why there tends to be an underutilization of mental health services or a lack of access. Yes, both. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so first of all, many veterans with trauma do not want to use the VA healthcare system. Um, there's still a stigma about that. There's still the idea that, you know, there are long waits and there's um, sort of like an assembly line and they're not really known or heard. Um, um, this is changing. And I'm, I am very happy to say that uh, if you go to va.gov, you will see the, the tremendous number of services now being offered uh, to veterans. But in addition to not wanting to access the VA healthcare system, you're looking at a, a, a place that's fused with triggers for, for traumatic stress, um, especially for women who experience sexual assault while enlisted. Many do not want to go to a VA hospital with its ubiquitous presence of men and men in uniform, you know, which can increase feelings of, of vulnerability, of anxiety. Um, in addition, in, in recent years, <laughs> well, the last 30 or so, PTSD groups were run largely by Vietnam veterans. So when you have returning OIF, OEF folks, you know, talk of foxholes and swamp fever are just not relatable. Um, uh, so you see a lot of dropping out, a lot of attrition from these groups. Um, many recently returned veterans faced very high unemployment rates. Um, at the time, it was about 2010 to 2013, 14, when a lot of these you know, uh, veterans were coming back. Um, and they, um, they, they wanted to go back in. They wanted to re-enlist. They felt like not only was it profitable, but it was maybe the only outlet for them. People weren't getting them. They weren't, they were coming home and people were talking about things that they could not relate to. And they wanted to be back with their comrades, their band of brothers and sisters, and uh, they would re-enlist. So going to the VA for help with these symptoms can limit the possibility of re-enlistment. Um, going to the VA um, also might require long drives, and that's even if you're capable of driving. So um, access becomes, a, becomes an issue. So, so one of the things I, I talk about is how do we outreach? outreach to veterans? How do we let them know um, that we're available? Well, one thing is, is um, a very um, beneficial improvement that the VA has instituted, and that is that any veteran who lives 40 miles or farther from a VA healthcare center can choose a therapist of their liking. Um, and that means that veterans no longer have to go to the VA to get their healthcare services. Um, so they don't, they don't just get to choose a therapist, they get to choose any healthcare practitioner. And to get to be a provider, um, one just has to go through TriWest, 
which is an online process. It's, it's easily navigable. Um, there aren't a lot of requirements. There could be a wait list, but, um, but that's a good place to start to, to register at, um, try West uh, to become a provider for veterans. Um, another place to meet veterans and engage them are uh, veteran stand downs. These are very often, um, offered in larger cities. Veterans Day events where they have booths and, and you can talk to veterans and then going to tent cities. And even if you have access to prisons and jails, many veterans are in there and have not been identified as a veteran. And, and, and the VA is, is offering expanded services so that identifying veterans um, who are unhoused or in jails or in prisons um, is, is, is made more, is made easier. So they can get these specialized services that are offered to them. People, veterans in, in jails and prisons can actually get reduced sentences. Um, especially if they're, um, if they're incarcerated because of, um, a, a PTSD or another war, uh, war related injury. So it's important that they are identified. <laughs> when I worked, I worked for a, um, after that initial experience with recognizing that there are veterans out there who are unhoused, I um, helped to start a program at the VA um, called New Directions, and it was for, for homeless veterans, and it was a 156-bed program. We were full on day one, and we... Um, We'd go around to MacArthur Park and, and other places where, veter- where where people were unhoused and living in ten cities and so forth. And I'd walk around and ask people, "Hey, are you are you a veteran? You're a veteran. <laughs> Get in the van, <laughs> you know." And we'd we'd pick them up and we'd send outreach workers into jails and prisons so that they um, the veterans there could be identified and be able to get those reduced sentences and get. Um, uh, drug court and and other um, other other services that are available to veterans that that uh, they may not even know exist. So we we did a lot of outreach, um, and and that's important. And 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 people who are interested in this population can certainly become engaged in in many of those ways. So it sounds like for you, first and foremost, it's just spreading information about access, and then taking down barriers like being in jail, being incarcerated, um, lack of resources, houselessness, contributing to difficulty even attending appointments, let alone finding a provider and all of that. Um, You had mentioned one thing that stood out to me, which was the potential for a reduction in sentencing relating to crimes that are somehow involved with a person's mental health condition, which may stem from their their time as a service member. Can you expand upon that? Because I think it's a really interesting idea to consider and, and kind of, I can hear it's one of those forest meets the trees moments of understanding how all of these pieces are fitting together and why we have veterans that are incarcerated and, and how how it kind of builds upon itself. Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, and, and indeed it does. Um, it does build upon itself. So what we what is what is offered to veterans and what we offered over at New Directions was veterans court. And that also includes drug court. Many veterans come back with 
these depressive symptoms. They don't want to think of themselves as having post-traumatic stress disorder because that has a negative connotation to many veterans. So they, um, they will engage in more drug and alcohol use. And, and once you're getting into that, it can lead to relationship problems and losing housing, losing employment. So you see people becoming um, unhoused, right? You're seeing people living on the streets. And as a result, there are a lot of crimes that are deliberately created, laws that are deliberately created so that it prevents homelessness. So you can't park your vehicle between 2 and 4 a.m. on most streets. So you get tickets for that. And people living in their in their cars and their vans and so forth, they they, are, they get repeated violations. You can't um, have a shopping cart. And sometimes that's the only place to put belongings. And there's fines for that, laws that you're breaking. There are... Um, Laws like public urination or public intoxication. Well, where are you going to go? I mean, where, 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 how, do you, how do you take care of basic hygiene needs? Um, and if you have an alcohol or drug addiction, where else are you going to drink if you're living on the street? So you're going to be in public and you're going to be intoxicated and you're going to be facing laws that prevent you from doing that. So there's a lot of discrimination, obviously, against people who are unhoused. And, um, and, and, and a lot of communities don't want them in their, on their streets. So, for example, New Directions, when I worked with them, I was the clinical director for that program, we would have contracts with the city of Beverly Hills of Santa Monica to take in their homeless veterans because of course, they wanted them to get services, let's say that first and foremost, but they also didn't want them on their streets, right? So um, uh, so we would offer veterans court actually at our facility, but there's veterans court that's offered throughout many counties and veterans can get, like we've talked about, some reduced sentencing. Um, they can even get some of their crimes thrown out. And if it's drug and alcohol related that is a result of some post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury, then they, they get different treatment and they're, they're, they are provided with more services. And that's what's really key here. If you happen to know, I'm curious, when looking at a sample of houseless individuals, about what percentage were former service members? Well, I do happen to know that because when we first started, <laughs> we, we first started to um, ask the VA at West LA, the, one of the largest VAs in the country, um, it, we asked them to, to, to open up a program for homeless veterans. So after I had the encounter with that, with that gentleman on the street who was a veteran, I got introduced to a, a two-tour Vietnam veteran who also wanted to open up a program. And we found a building that was unused on the grounds of the West LA VA. Hadn't been used for 75 years. And we said, let's turn this into a homeless veterans program. Sounds great. Let's do it. Got funding, went to the VA. There are no homeless veterans. Really? What makes you say that? 
well, we we don't encounter we we've never heard of homeless veterans. We haven't heard of a problem. Now, now, granted, this is what nineteen. We opened in nineteen ninety seven. Took five years, so it's early nineteen nineties. Okay, and we're saying, but there are homeless veterans. In fact. There are people living in tents right off of Wilshire and Sepulveda, where the entrance is to the West LAVA hospital. So we um, we see them. And um, because they'd come for an appointment and they lived maybe in San Bernardino or out by Pasadena, which is quite a ways from the West LAVA, um, then the, their doctors would tell them, oh, you have a follow-up in three weeks. Well, they don't want to take a train or a bus or hitch a ride back all that way. So they camp out. That's what veterans do best. You know, they know how to bivouac, you know. So they, they, they set up a tent. They're right there. They'll go to their appointment in three weeks. Well, um, we did a survey. And um, the, actually it was the L.A. Homeless Services Agency, LASA. And they did a survey of who is homeless in West Los Angeles. And it was 33%, that's exactly a third, of the homeless people in West Los Angeles were veterans. That's a huge number, huge number. Now, now granted, it is because the large VA hospital is situated there, but still, still. We, we were entreated to do something once we had those numbers. We had to do something. And at that point, the VA said, yes, go ahead and open, open the program. And to their credit, within a year, they offered us another building. And it was for what was, what's known as the duly diagnosed, right? So it was people with PTSD plus drug and alcohol issues. So we had another 54-bed program and plus the 156-bed program. And then we actually also opened the program for um, women veterans. And um, so we, we, and then within years, that West LA VA was um, recognized um, with awards from Washington as one of the, the, the top programs for homeless veterans. So I have to give them credit there that they, they came around once, once they had the numbers. Going back to the idea about stigma in just veterans using terms like post-traumatic stress disorder, in our culture right now, trauma, trauma is like a real buzzword. <laughs> How is that changing in the service population? Is that changing that more people are talking about trauma, whether it's quote unquote post-traumatic stress disorder or it's combat related stress disorder or anything else? Is the fact that more people are talking about trauma, do you think that's making it easier for veterans to acknowledge it now that's in the media more there's more discussion about it or do you think the stigma is just really so heavy that it's going to be very very difficult to kind of jiggle that loose i i think it is definitely being talked about more and as a result that helps just like the me too movement right you know as long as we're talking about it um, and more attention is given to it, you see that stigma decreases. And that's what's really important because um, one of the things that happens with, um, with, with veterans is that, um, you know, they're, they're taught to be tough, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you, you know, all of those, all of those um, 
you know, all those things are largely born of military service. Um, there's, a, there's a great quote by a gentleman named Jonathan Shea, who says, the moral power of the army is so great that it can motivate men to get up out of a trench and step into machine gun fire. I mean, that's just extraordinary, right? Um, and, 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 and so you have men who are proud of their service. They don't want to be now diagnosed as though, you know, they're weak or they, you know, they fell victim to something. Because why do some men and women get PTSD and some don't? There must be something wrong with me for having gotten it. So many veterans don't want to be diagnosed with that. And I think it, it is making it easier now that the VA is acknowledging that PTSD it can be a result of um, you know, war-related stressors and, and, uh, and are providing benefits for that. They, now veterans are able to get what's called service-connected benefits. So it makes it easier even you know, just in that way um, to say, okay, the VA recognizes it. This is not just some fluff diagnosis that, you know, therapists want to put on us. It's a real thing. And maybe this explains why I've been feeling this way. You know? And they say it's one dreadful but brief journey from thou shalt not kill to kill and be killed. And that's a hard road to walk. It's it's hard to hear. <laughs> um, it's hard to hear and think about. You have mentioned briefly kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. You've mentioned things like traumatic brain injury. For our listeners who aren't as familiar with these terms, with these diagnoses, with these conditions and their etiology, can you give us kind of what I'll call the 101 and talk about the conditions that are most common in veterans and how they present clinically? Sure, absolutely. Let, let's take a look at that then. With PTSD, there, there are four major types of symptoms, and, and they're not always easy to, to, to see. So it's important that, our, that, that clinicians are aware of this. And of course, you've got the DSM, and, and it explains it really well. So the four types, the first one is reliving the, the event, right? It's also called re-experiencing symptoms. So you got things like nightmares, flashbacks, triggers. I think we've all heard about how fireworks or hearing a car backfire can get a veteran, you know, to, to relive and re-experience being in war, right? We, we've, we've heard stories of veterans who literally, you know, jump through windows and looking for their foxholes when, when they hear fireworks or hear helicopters overhead. Um, the second main type of PTSD symptom is avoidance. So you're looking at avoiding crowds. You're looking at avoiding watching movies about war. But it also means avoiding seeking help because it keeps you from having to think or talk about the event. That's another reason why it is more difficult to outreach to, to veterans. And then a third 
type of symptom is negative changes in, in beliefs and feelings. So this is what we see impact relationships a great deal. You stay away from relationships. People can't be trusted. The world is dangerous. Um, you don't want to talk about the traumatic event, and you may even forget aspects of it. Um, here's where depression is going to also fit in. And then the fourth type of symptom is hyperarousal, you know, feeling really keyed up, on alert, looking out for danger. You can be very suddenly become angry or irritable, have a hard time sleeping, get startled by a loud noise, um, you know, what we call an exaggerated startle response. Many veterans that I would go out with, we'd go out to movies or dinner, and they would want to sit with their back to a wall. You, know, you see veterans in a waiting room looking for the right place to sit so they can see everyone. You, know, you don't want to have their back to anyone. And, and um, yeah, th these symptoms will um, absolutely <laughs> impact relationships and, and can, can make people want to just drown out their troubles, right? Um, with, with traumatic brain injury, you're looking at something a little more diff a little different. Um, but it, it here it really calls for a, um, a distinct differential diagnosis because the, not only the person suffering from it may not know that they have it, but clinicians trying to diagnose and treat it may have a hard time with either misdiagnosing or misinterpreting some of the some of the symptoms because with a tra traumatic brain injury, you have something that actually caused a um, structural or physiolo physiological disruption of brain function, okay? So you have loss of consciousness, loss of memory, or d decrease in memory of the events. You might even have um, an alteration in the mental state that, so that you, you, you can have a concussion, you can have disorientation, you can have confusion. Um, but here, here's when it gets complicated with, with traumatic brain injuries. The, the, there's physical symptoms, there's cognitive symptoms, and there's emotional symptoms, all right? So you've got from the physical symptoms, you can have headaches and dizziness. Well, you can have that with so many other conditions, right? Sensitivity to light or noise, right? Change in vision and hearing, well, you know, then you've got to refer for a medical evaluation. Cognitive symptoms, you're going to have forgetting and concentration issues, um, sometimes really poor organizational issues, difficulty with follow-through. And then emotionally, you can have personality changes, mood swings, um, things like impulsivity, disinhibition. So these things can occur with a lot of other symptoms. They also look like PTSD in a lot of ways. So we, we, we need to have a, a fairly good idea of, of um, what, what the experiences were that the veteran, the veteran had, right? So did they have, were they exposed to some kind of explosive device? Um, these, those are often the reasons why TBI gets developed. Um, I had a woman veteran who was loading a, um, a machine gun and um, one of the um, 
the ignition actually failed and the, the, the explosion happened right there, um, right where she was sitting. And um, it, it caused, you know, immediate hearing loss and so forth. But what she didn't realize is that it actually caused a concussion for her. Um, so uh, she, she never even thought of that as, as why she was having these headaches and, and dizziness and so forth and loss of concentration. We went back and explored what happened during your military service. We saw that that was, that was an issue for her, and I sent her to have a neurological workup. I want to talk about, though, another construct that was born of military service and, and, and which, until the last decade or so, we have not heard much about. And, and that is called moral injury. And two researchers, McGowan and Litz, uh, started noticing veterans coming back from OIF, OEF, had what looked like PTSD, but they would describe the origin of it um, as being exposure to a, a transgression. And, and, and let me go back just a moment because what I needed to say about PTSD is those are the symptoms, but they are the result of a life-threatening experience that you either experienced yourself or witnessed. So that has to be the primary factor with PTSD. With moral injury, there is an extreme life event that creates a harmful aftermath, but it is the transgression of deeply held morals or ethics or spiritual beliefs that are at the heart of it. So, so again, you have to tease apart what is the cause of this, this construct? It's really not a diagnosis yet. And it looks, it can look very much like PTSD, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. But once again, we need to tease apart, where did it come from? So one of the things I want to say about moral injury is that it can happen from the immoral acts of others, that's giving or receiving orders that are a gross moral violation. Um, but it can also be unintentional errors. You know, I had a, I had a veteran, uh, Ricky, who took him two years before he started to talk about this in group with us. Um, he said, you know, military personnel are great at doing their job and making life or death decisions during war. But sometimes unintentional errors happen and they lead to loss of life of your own comrades, your own band of brothers, right, and sisters. And, and, and this is very, very hard for veterans. And service members can also be morally injured by transgression of peers or leaders who betray their expectations, who, who maybe do it deliberately. And those are different than these unintentional errors. Um, but in either case, you're going to have what looks a lot like PTSD in the form of shame and guilt, withdrawal, some self-harming, self-handicapping self behaviors, alcohol and drug use, suicidal ideation, self-sabotaging of relationships. But here's, here's the difference. 
that if you go back to where it came from, you could really pull out the moral injury in it. And very often what lies beneath this is a fear of retribution. I'm going to be found out. I did something wrong. Someone will know. I will not get an honorable discharge. I'll lose all my benefits. And it it really has far-reaching effects. You don't see that as much with PTSD. With PTSD, the veterans that I have seen have always said, why wasn't it me? So they, they, they had the life, life-threatening experience, and they, they had the fear that came from that, but they, they don't necessarily have the sense of, um, you know, that they did, did something wrong. They may feel like they would have liked their life to be taken because of that close-knit society that it's built in the military, but they don't fear, feel like um, they necessarily did something wrong. So it's important to look at this moral injury. Um, I don't think many, many people have uh, an idea about this. I, I had many questions about it, and I've been treating veterans for over 35 years. And when I look back, I wondered, wow, or was was this a moral injury, or, or was this PTSD? And it's important. It's I believe set apart. You said something there that I want to go back to, which is this is not considered for diagnosis yet. You, as far as I know, are not in consideration of of you know, the DSM for inclusion and the board's review. But it sounds like for you, this is such a hallmark clinical issue in working particularly with a veteran population that you're recognizing basically this is foundational, is understanding the witnessing of the experiencing of, it sounds like in a lot of ways, kind of loss of hope or loss of loss of self um, in, in the sense that that groundlessness of, I don't know where I am, who I am, how I fit into all of this, how the pieces fit together anymore. Where do I go from here? And then that idea of loss of retribution. Do you think that this is headed for some kind of diagnosis or is it more just almost like a potential symptom or experience that really just needs to be considered in working with veterans? Right now, it is just considered a a dimensional problem, a a construct. There's no threshold for the presence of moral injury. There's no given point of time when it might start, like we have with PTSD versus acute stress disorder. We have timeframes for those. There's no designation of mild, moderate, or severe manifestations of it as of yet. However, I do think that maybe DSM-6, because the DSM-5-TR, of course, is already out, um, but maybe the DSM-6 will look at moral injury as a very significant factor for the development of all the other constellation of symptoms that we see happen when there is... um, a a trauma like this, a transgression like this um, within, um, you know, your your comrades, within your community, your band, your pack. It it really is, um, it has harmful aftermaths. 
and it has harmful effects. So I, I, I can see this being included, um, perhaps under the PTSD rubric. Uh, thank you. Dr. Lauren, before you and I started recording, I shared that I, I come from a family of veterans and some of the things we're discussing today are uh, making me look at family albums in my head. And also the realization that some of the themes you're discussing are now much more prevalent, I think, in the media that we're seeing television shows, movies talking about these things in a way that they didn't necessarily before, where I think before it was the display of the brutality of war and the camaraderie that could be found within that, but not necessarily the aftermath. And we're seeing more, I think, discussion of the aftermath of what happens when these things unfold. Um, You mentioned traumatic brain injury, a referral to a neurologist. It sounds like when you're assessing somebody who has a history as a service member, you are really going into Sherlock mode to kind of uncover what could be here to fully understand their symptom and presentation. When do you know that it's time to refer out to neurology, especially considering that one of the other hallmarks of all of this is loss of memory? So they could say, I've never been hit in the head. That's never happened. I've never heard a loud sound that, that really startled me or whatever it is, but that it could still absolutely be there. It just may not be recalled. You know, I always joke that it's Freud meets Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, you kind of hit, hit something there for me. <laughs> Um, absolutely. You know, you know, even as a psychologist trained in behavioral medicine, I still know that when I see physical or physiological symptoms like, um, you know, significant loss of memory, loss of memory around a traumatic event, co- you know, continued confusion and delirium, uh, um, uh, uh, things like, um, of course, people losing consciousness, things like that. I, I, I absolutely know to send out for uh, a neurological eval. However, there are more subtle signs, and and some of those things, if they light something up in your head, you might want to go back and see more about what happened during their military service. What could have what could have triggered this? And then even though they don't realize it, you can put it together that, oh, this person may have experienced um, some kind of you know, brain injury. And in, as, as a result, they may need some specialized treatment for that. So not just the neurological evaluation, but also you know, psychoneurological rehabilitation, cognitive rehabilitation, things like that, that will be necessary and which we can be trained, uh, clinicians can be trained, mental health clinicians, to provide those services. You can get specialty training. I I really want to talk about another issue that I just can't let go because it's so important. And it's something called post-traumatic growth. And Researchers are showing that resilience and healing are often very possible outcomes from traumatic stress. And you mentioned how the media talks a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and and, and that's good because it helps to destigmatize our veterans from going to get these diagnoses. However, we're missing out on another very important component that the media, for some reason, is not picking up. And a researcher at the University of North Carolina, Richard Tadeshi, he has been routinely reporting on positive changes from trauma. 
And this is so important to help our clients to explore these opportunities and to convert adversity into strength. And we can help them do that. So there's really good news here. As therapists, that we can help our clients to transform trauma into growth. And, and what Dr. Tedeschi is saying is that the trauma that people experience can lead to five important areas in their lives. A renewed appreciation for life, new possibilities for themselves, more personal strength, improved relationships, and more spiritual satisfaction. Those are things that have been discovered that are such important areas of growth that come from trauma, and we can help facilitate that, help facilitate our, our veterans move from trauma to growth. And, and I really want to emphasize that that's a possibility. And, and one of the ways we can help do that is by building relationships with veterans. Not always the easiest thing to do. I used to sit in group with Marines and you know, army vets, rangers, seals, Navy seals, and they'd sit there with their arms crossed. And I thought, I would think, they've been in war. How could they be afraid of 45 minutes of therapy? <laughs> well, guess what? They don't want to open up. They've been taught <laughs> not to open up, right? So the relationship is the starting point for trust, and it's a, an essential ingredient. And we have to give it time to develop and realize that we may be put off for a bit. We don't want to jump right into their trauma and have them do narratives right away. We want to be respectful of the time that they need and realize that there may be a defensive posture that they need to present with at first. They have a lot to lose starting a relationship with us, especially with civilian therapists. How can you really understand what I went through? What if I end up losing my benefits because you disagree with the diagnosis that was given to me? My lifelong service-connected benefits. How can you really know who I am? You know, if, if, especially if they are being overly cautious and reluctant to engage with us. So giving it time, helping asking them to help you understand the veteran experience, the military experience. Let them explain that to you even from a third-person perspective. So coming from a person-centered approach, I think really helps regardless of the methodology that we use. The, vet, the VA recommends cognitive behavioral therapy to help veterans with PTSD, and that includes things like cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure. That's not flooding, by the way. The old flooding is not used anymore. Um, but taking time out to understand their concerns, understand that we're not just interested in, in an incident. We're interested in, in them as people. Um, and, and, and to take your time. The idea of post-traumatic growth has there been enough research on this to really manualize it? Or as you said, is it really just about the relationship about time and space? Like, where do you think the field is going in acknowledgement of combat related trauma and moving forward? 
I know that research is being done on this, that there was a recent article in Harvard Business News um, interviewing uh, Dr. Martin Seligman. He was a past president of the American Psychological Association. He is now the director of the Positive Psychology Center. He has been the major proponent of positive psychology, and he has been talking about post-traumatic growth and has been doing research in this area. And I think that before long, um, the media will be picking up on this. I think the media is a little bit lagging behind, but they will pick up on this for, for certain. When it comes to the treatment of traumatic brain injury, so once you've referred to a neurologist, they're doing their neurological workup, discovering that there may be some biological, physiological harm hallmarks of traumatic brain injury. What does treatment look like when you as a clinician know that TBI is part of the picture? And that, so basically there's this whole underlying medical component, and then there's the practical experience of working with the person in the room. Absolutely. So I always get releases so that I can talk to their physicians, neurologists, or whomever else they're seeing. I want to make sure of any other medications that they're taking that can be interfering with memory to begin with. Um, I also want to coordinate services so that uh, we're looking at whether or not um, some of the medications might be also interfering with memory. We don't want to have a, like, a double whammy for these, for these veterans. And then we want to work on almost always memory issues. It seems like um, cognitively, because memory is so diffuse in the brain, it's, it's everywhere. So whenever you see a, uh, a, an injury to the brain, almost always you're going to have some memory loss when, it, when, it, when you have an injury like, a, um, like an explosion, because it, it, it itself is also diffuse. So, so in, in that case, we want to work on building memory mnemonics. We want to build on very um, structured methods to help them um, remember basic things, appointments, um, keys, addresses, and phone numbers of important contacts. So we really work on developing that kind of thing that's very just useful and, and immediate, and then look at some of the other areas that might be um, impacted. Concentration we can help do, do as clinicians. That's those, those are things that we're trained to do, uh, attentional issues. Very often, um, attention is interfered with, and that can lead to memory deficits, because if you're not attending, you're not encoding memory. So there are, there are definitely ways where we can help with them and also some of the disinhibition um, that happens with uh, frontal lobe injuries where you can have immediate outbreaks of anger and irritability. And we can help with that, building in behavioral constraints. And, and um, there's a lot that mental health clinicians can really do to help our veterans in, in every way. It sounds like part of it is that almost occupational therapy component 
to come up with solutions to solving those kind of day-to-day problems of where are my keys and what time is the appointment and how do I get there and what doctor is it with um, to the much more hands-on development of distress tolerance skills and coping, increase of social supports, things like that. So it's it sounds like you're not saying TBI basically renders therapy, quote-unquote talk therapy, useless. It just means it needs to be done in concert with all of these other things in order to produce a more optimal outcome. Absolutely. And it, it does look like coordinating with occupational therapists. There's no question about that. Sometimes veterans can't get to all those different appointments and we have to fill in. But I think developing those social supports is, is crucial. Sometimes bringing in family and partners and whoever is available to help the veteran, depending on the severity of the, of the injury. Um, I think bringing in people who can be social supports, making sure to develop a, a good safety plan when necessary. Uh, you know, suicidal ideation can often occur if you think that you're never going to get better, you know. Um, so we want to give hope. Uh, we want to address issues of, of loss that we can still um bring in no matter what the, um, tra- whether it's traumatic brain injury or, t- or PTSD we, or moral injury, we want to absolutely look at loss, like you mentioned earlier, um, and, and alcohol and drug use, which is going to make any of those issues worse, especially, especially a traumatic brain injury. Um, we want to help them re- re-examine perceived relationship failures and help them reunite with family. That will be so important um, for the for the continued growth of, of the veteran. Um, so often I've been able to see relationships get repaired. And one of my greatest joys is when I get related, I see my veteran, either I get a phone call or they, they'll actually bring in a spouse or partner or child um, and say, we're back, you know, and, and, and thank you. And I, I'm just so happy with that outcome. As you know, relationships are, um, are what make life go around. In the VA, you've mentioned that there is often a reliance on things like CBT. If you happen to know, can you speak to some of the non-CBT mental health treatments available to veterans just for consideration, um, because when we're looking at the research, pretty much all therapeutic methods work for some people some of the time. <laughs> and if you're lucky, most people most of the time, but it never works for everybody. Um, so in the absence of that, if CBT is not the go-to modality, I mean, I, I can already hear in the way that you're talking, I can hear some dialectical behavior therapy, I can hear some mindfulness. Can you speak to some of these other methods that can be helpful in the treatment of veterans? Yes, you, you got it. Exactly. I, I use... I use a lot of those methods in terms of mindfulness. Uh, there's even mindfulness CBT that is um, becoming very popular now. The VA recommends CBT, trauma-focused CBT treatments like 
I mentioned prolonged exposure and cognitive pro- reprocessing, but they also recommend EMDR. That's now a, um, a recommended treatment of choice for veterans. It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, I am trained in that as well. But I really think uh, I'm going to go back to old school, person-centered, being there with the person and developing that relationship and having them move through their experiences with you in a safe environment and bringing in the breathing, the guided imagery, all that good go-to stuff that we know helps at least in the moment, to reduce that fight, flight, faint, or freeze response that is built in with our sympathetic nervous system to just react, right? Because if they didn't react immediately, they were at risk. When, when you're at war, you know to rely on your sympathetic nervous response. Fight, flight, And that's what we try to really encourage in them in the military. However, that's not going to work when your daughter brings home a new friend and they look like someone from the old days that triggers that old response. So we want to encourage that parasympathetic nervous response, the one that brings back equilibrium, that helps us to calm that nervous response, calm the anxiety, bring back the breathing, the heart rate. And we do that with all that lovely mindfulness uh, stuff, I will say, that's out there in abundance. Um, Leaves on a Stream is now on YouTube, and you can access that anywhere. It's one of the best, most classic relaxation exercises. So we want to make sure we, we get that to build in into the, the, the parasympathetic response. Thank you for giving us as listeners today some ideas about not just conceptualizing mental health care for veterans, but then the application of like, what does that actually look like on our couches and how we care for this population? And and even from the beginning, you're saying, here's how we get folks onto our couches and here are some of the things that are inhibiting that. And so the barriers that have prevented people from coming in historically. Um, Dr. Lauren, for our listeners who want to learn more about about this, about working with veterans, about the most common conditions, about the best treatments for them. What resources do you recommend? Websites, books, anything like that? Absolutely. I'm going to go back to the to the standard, uh, which is va.gov. Uh, and you can sign up as clinicians to um, be part of their training program. And it's called train, T-R-A-I-N.org. You can get all kinds of free trainings there specifically related to um, military service members. There are also um, many other resources if you want to learn more about moral injury, McGuen, M-A-G-U-E-N, and LITS, L-I-T-Z, have, have done quite a bit of uh, research in this area. Positive psychology, Marty Seligman, uh, you can look up his center, and he talks about post-traumatic growth, as does Richard Tedeschi, T-E-D-E-S-H-I, I believe. 
It'll probably get you there. It'll be close enough. T-D-E-C-H-S-H-I. Uh, University of North Carolina. You can look up his work on positive uh, growth as well, positive traumatic growth. And then um, I wrote a book called Birds of a Feather, The Healing Power of uh, Animals and Veterans Working Together. And I also run a group for veterans with PTSD and traumatic brain injury. It's a program uh, called Warriors and Wolves. And you can look that up on my website, uh, laurenlindnerphd.com, as well as warriorsandwolves.org. Fantastic. Um, this has been such a calming and thorough dive into this topic. And I'm grateful to the folks like you that really learn about this population and then figure out the best ways to help. Because as you said, it's, it's quite a big population that has historically been undertreated. Um, so thank, thank you for not only joining us today, but also for your contribution in working with this group. Um, again, for our listeners, this is Dr. Lauren Linder. She gave some great resources there. Um, but one of her websites would be, I, I think, a primary place to start. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Linder. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for being open to this topic. Really appreciate that. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.